Hello, and welcome to the Conversations with Data podcast, where we bring you the most interesting discussions around data journalism. I'm your host, Tara Kelly, and our latest episode features Ava Constantaris and Anastasia Valiva. Ava is a data journalist specialized in building data journalism teams in the global south. These teams have reported from across Asia, the Middle East, Latin America, and Africa on topics ranging from broken foreign aid and food insecurity to extractive industries and public health. As a data journalism scholar and a Fulbright fellow, she has developed a manual for teaching investigative and data journalism in high-risk environments. Anastasia is a data journalism trainer and an open data researcher. She has taught data journalism in Europe, the Balkans, Central Asia, and Russia, and is currently a data journalism lecturer at the American University of Central Asia, Kyrgyzstan. She was also a co-founder of School of Data Kyrgyzstan and has researched the use of open data in investigative journalism as part of her fellowship at the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism at Oxford University. The pair talked to us about the power of using hypothesis-driven methodologies to tell stories about hidden and forgotten communities. This podcast is an edited version from datajournalism.com's live Discord chat held on the 6th of July, 2021. If you'd like to get the Conversations with Data podcast straight to your inbox, all you need to do is head over to datajournalism.com slash subscribe to receive our newsletter. Let's take a listen to our conversation with Ava Constantaris and Anastasia Valiva now. Ladies, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having us on, Tara. This is a really important topic for us to be discussing, and I'm glad to be here. Marvelous. Me too. Thank you for having us, and thank you for everybody who joined. Great. Now, um, Ava, let's start with you, and let's start with the basics. Talk to us about what a data hypothesis methodology is and why it matters. Certainly. So I think uh, hypothesis is... In its simplest form, it's basically an affirmative statement that can be proven true or false with data. Um, So instead of starting with sort of a general overall question, you basically start with your theory um, and then use data to prove your theory true or false. Um, And so the reason that I, I have sort of adopted this approach is because A few years ago, I came across Mark Lee Hunter's book on story-based inquiry, which is, it's actually a manual for investigative journalism. Um, So it it has a much wider um, applicability, but he had one tip in that manual that really addressed a lot of the concerns that I had been having when I was teaching data journalism. And what he said is that a hypothesis virtually guarantees that you will deliver a story and not just a mass of data. And basically what I was seeing was a lot of data journalism stories were less story and more data. Um, So instead of delivering a concise, coherent set of information that could help citizens make better decisions in their lives or understand their communities better, um, a lot of data journalism was just sort of presenting this mass of data. It was this approach to sort of really informing um, your data journalism work 
by doing research, by building this, by constructing, carefully constructing a hypothesis, and then focusing your analysis on answering questions that can prove that hypothesis true or false. That's basically, in a nutshell, the idea um, of developing um, a data-driven hypothesis and leading um, a story-based inquiry approach when teaching data journalism. Brilliant. Now, let's talk to Anastasia. Now, you're a data journalism trainer and also a lecturer working in Kyrgyzstan, um, and you've also taught elsewhere in Central Asia, Russia, the Balkans. How can a hypothesis-based approach for data storing help unearth those untold stories in often forgotten or hidden communities, in your opinion? Yeah, I will start saying that I inherited this method by becoming Eva's assistant. This is how I stepped into the field. And um, I found it very helpful, um, not only teaching data journalism, as Eva said, but also in the process of mentoring the data journalism process, because it, it helps divide um, the whole process of working on a story in uh, steps that are measurable and that you can prove or disprove each question that ultimately builds up into a broader hypothesis that you're trying to prove. And so um, when we were teaching data journalism and uh, mentoring these stories in all these different countries, I think the main challenge was to explain to journalists what a data hypothesis really is. Because um, I think oftentimes when we teach data to journalists, we teach too many skills and less of critical thinking with data. But this is exactly where journalists comes, journalism comes in. So when we try to explain that with data, you can um, find systemic biases or with data, you can prove um, the inequity in the society. This really often depends on the statistics, how the statistics is provided. Oftentimes it's not very granular, but even if it's uh, sex disaggregated, you can build any hypothesis about uh, like females being uh, less um, advantaged in certain areas or, 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 versus, or, or vice versa, male being more disadvantaged. Uh, so I think we were trying to uh, let them feel that the problems that they were used to talk about without data can be tackled with data, but even on a more powerful level. Brilliant. Now, Ava, you developed a manual for teaching investigative and data journalism in high-risk environments. Perhaps you could just define what that actually means for us. But tell us about that. And how important do you think like the hypothesis methodology and this manual you developed? So basically what Anastasia was was mentioning was was basically what I was finding to be true. So when data journalism was being taught, um, journalists were being taught um, how to build maps using California wildfire data. They were using open refine to clean uh, candidates running for New York City Council. So journalists were being taught tools entirely out of context, and they were being taught tools and not processes. So I think there was a backlash against data journalism because donors and media houses were investing a lot of money in, in what I call these the data journalism boot camp model. 
Um, so in one week, we're going we're gonna to introduce a bunch of data journalism tools to you um, and then go take them back to your newsroom and produce brilliant data journalism pieces. And I, I think part of that came out of, um, I'm going to bring in Meredith Broussard's concept of techno chauvinism. So the idea that somehow technology will magically solve um, all of our issues. So my, my starting point was like, yes, the tools are important, but what is most important is the process. So journalists need to learn how to follow uh, a research methods process so that they can actually realize the story that they've been wanting to investigate. So what I would do is I would start with journalists who are really passionate about their beat. It didn't really matter to me um, in terms of their technical skill. And so I would tease out with them in discussion based on the data we have, um, what hypothesis can you develop? And from that hypothesis, then we went into the approach breaks down into question categories. So once you have a hypothesis, how are we going to measure the problem with data? How are we going to measure what populations have been impacted by data? How are we going to measure the cause um, of the issue with data? And then how are we going to measure the solution? And once we bring in all those data sets and have all of those interview questions for our data, then again, we're almost guaranteed to find a story at the end of the process. Um, and the reality is that in a lot of these newsrooms, so if, we're, if I am working in a Kenyan newsroom where we have exactly one data journalist in the newsroom, they are not gonna have the resources to have you know, someone doing data visualization, having somebody do the analysis for them, someone build a regression model. Uh, so with the resources we have, what kind of data-driven stories can come out of it? And, and as Anastasia said, what we come to often and what my methodology is based on is how do we use data to uncover these systemic issues, whether it's healthcare inequity, education inequities, and in, in that case, it's less important to have granular data and more important to have very clear in your mind how you're going to approach this question and what specific area you're going to tackle uh, through a hypothesis. So through that general framing, we've built up a course, um, and Anastasia and I worked in a pretty critical period in Kyrgyzstan and Albania where we, we completely fleshed out this program and it became basically a 200-hour course. So that's a five-week full-time course. Um, usually it's it's taught over a few months, but we've done this uh, both in Kyrgyzstan and Albania and Pakistan, more recently in Jordan. Um, we've done part of it in Myanmar. And again, the idea is that we're adapting to the realities of the data environment and we're creating a process so that motivated journalists who really are passionate about the topic they're covering have a way to independently produce data stories after they go through this program. Marvelous. So what, what you're saying is these one-week boot camps that were introduced at certain news organizations, they're not really an effective way to teach this. Like you're saying we need like hundreds of hours of training to understand and develop this kind of understanding and, and storytelling skills, really. Yeah, so I mean, the analogy I give is you wouldn't you wouldn't give a bunch of um, med students a boot camp and how to do surgery and then send them all out into the field to do surgery. Right. It's I think in the in the environments we work in, it's almost irresponsible um, to teach a bunch of data tools without teaching the foundations of data literacy. 
um, without teaching people how to vet their data, without teaching them how to do proper documentation. Um, so not only would I call it ineffective, I would call it also fairly irresponsible um, to try to take shortcuts. And Anastasia, I wonder if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, definitely. But um, that's also why I stayed in Kyrgyzstan, because I had a feeling that even 200 hours is not enough. And uh, I really wanted to make it work. And there are different problems um, in the education. One of them is that usually the ratio of successful students is not so high and it's normal. It's like one to 10, I would say. And I really wanted to see the fruits of, of our effort because we stayed for one month and we really delivered an, like an institute. Uh, and I could see where this could go if there were just more people successfully, um, you know, graduating from these programs. So I just stayed and I just adopted these methods. I also translated Eva's manual to Russian and localized it with examples from the region. And uh, we also got a team of the alumni of our first institute and we got going. So we were doing that for four years afterwards. Wow, that's that's brilliant that you decided to stay on and and continue that training because yeah, maybe even 200 hours isn't enough. Um, uh, and, and this field is all is constantly changing as well. Which brings me to my next question. Let's talk about the long read um, and some of the examples you, you mentioned in that piece. What are some of the ones that you mentioned that you find most impressive that are really telling these unheard stories, so to speak? Some of the examples I chose um... I chose for a couple of reasons, and this is this is pretty new um, in my thinking in data journalism, but I think our runway for making data journalism really feasible for newsrooms is running out. Um, and so what I tried to do was I tried to pick examples where the journalists made use of the data set that they have more than once. So they really tried to find an evergreen topic and use that data to, to reveal these systemic inequities. So the example from Publica in Brazil, they used it to, they used their, again, just using coronavirus as a hook. And then they really used that to dig into racial inequity data for the black population in the country. And then also looking at sort of a systemic failure um, for indigenous populations. So. I think it's still fairly rare that we see beat coverage and we see this kind of consistent, um, sustained coverage on things that are like outside of elections and economics. But I think we're seeing more and more um, data-driven hypotheses that again, that you can modify the hypothesis somewhat um, and explore another angle of these healthcare inequities. Um, so they, they're using the data they have at hand um, and they're not wasting the data. They're getting more than one solid hypothesis and more than one um, solid data story out of the data that they do have. I think that's excellent advice, <laughs> given how difficult it can be uh, to find data in these hard-to-reach countries or high-risk countries. Um, Anastasia, do you have any thoughts on that? Any shining examples? Yeah, I would just add that um, I think we've run through many examples uh, for this piece. At some point, we decided to focus on coronavirus inequity because that, that's kind of everybody's talking about. It's still actual. But um, 
you know, like, I think it's hard to choose between the stories you were working on or like, you, you know, uh, who has been working on so that you really know that the, uh, the method was applied uh, versus stories that uh, are really powerful. You're not sure if they applied that method, but it looks like. So in the end, I think it doesn't really matter if they really, you know, like read this manual or applied this method intentionally, but because they did it, with the journalistic thinking in mind, it worked. And I think we we tried to keep geographical equal distribution, having stories not only from the US, but also from Asia, Africa, Brazil, Latin America, etc. So um, I think we tried to show how it can work everywhere and how it can show systemic biases. And another barrier was the paywall and the language because well, you, you want uh, the pieces that go into the story to be accessible, but in the end, like with Google Translate, you can do it. So um, we were trying to find examples that really talk best, uh, explain best the, um, the things we are trying to explain. But it doesn't mean that they really used this method per se, but I think they are good examples, yeah. <laughs> It feels like often uh, data journalism training can feel very European or American, North American focused. You know, how do you break away from that when you're in Myanmar or Pakistan or elsewhere? Um, what are some of the things that you have to be mindful of, I wonder, and how does that affect your training on the ground? And, and also like with COVID, how have you been able to do this? Is a lot of it done remotely, I imagine, or... So yeah, right now um, I'm teaching a data journalism course um, for, jour for journalists from the Mekong region, um, and it's focused on water issues in the Mekong. And I've got a team from PB, um, that's a Myanmar uh, organization that works on data, and Open Development Cambodia, um, which is um, a Cambodia-based uh, data data organization, and basically we spend quite a lot of time uh, localizing the manual. So the manual itself is very generic and we localize it for two specific areas. We localize it obviously for the country or the region. And then we also localize it by the sector. So one thing that we realized it's very difficult, like I said, to learn data journalism unless you're going through the process and you can't go through the process from start to finish if you're jumping around from economic data to education data to environmental data. So we choose very early on in the process, we choose a sector focus or a thematic focus, and then we localize all the content. So the content's about half um, on the journalism and the analytical skills um, research method side, and then half of it is tool-based. And we localize both half of the manuals uh, based on the theme um, in the country. So it's actually quite a lot of work um, for the trainers involved to localize it. But what we realized that without, without going through that effort, they're never able to sort of go through the entire uh, data pipeline and data storytelling process with us. And without at least being able to go through it with us once, they're probably not going to be able to do it um, on their own. Because again, if they're working in countries where there are very few examples of data journalism stories, there's not a data journalism community uh, to lean on, they're most likely going to be working independently. So um, we've discovered that it really is very much worth the investment 
um, to localize the content and to very much slow it down um, so that they're actually able to practice each of the skills as we learn them um, and build through the story through uh, through the teaching process. So um, on your last question, I think it actually, the pandemic has made it a little bit easier to teach data journalism in a hybrid model because what I had found in the past was that remote learning was fairly ineffective because in a lot of these places, there wasn't really a culture of self-directed online study. Uh, so Coursera wasn't very popular yet. So we were asking them to learn an extremely challenging subject on a platform in a teaching format that, that they weren't familiar with. What we've seen since the pandemic and a lot of education is shifting online, that journalists are more willing um, to accommodate to this online learning format. They're more willing to do self-directed study. And as I'm sure all the data journalists on the call know, a lot of data journalism is trying and failing and trying again. And that sort of that learning process of, of problem solving um, and working together to, to do exercise and exchanging information, exchanging ideas. I, I see that in the last year, it's shifted it a lot. So it's, it's made um, the online format a lot easier. That said, I think we do sacrifice quite a lot in terms of really understanding what is motivating the journalist to learn data journalism and really helping them craft hypotheses and identify data that really is going to make um, the, the whole course worth their effort. So I think going forward, we're very much going to explore a hybrid approach. Um, so with partially in-person training where they all get to know each other and we all get to work together. Uh, part online and then probably in the end, um, bringing them um, all back together to produce their final investigation. Brilliant. And Anastasia, I wonder what your thoughts are. Yeah, definitely. I totally agree with Eva on localizing. So um, it really takes a lot of effort to, to go through local context. So it's not so easy to change the example in the generic manual with some local one, because you really have to, like for several days, study the uh, local agenda, the local data sets, etc., to be able to do meaningful examples even. And I really like it because in the end, journalists anyway know more than you do about their own country, about their own context. And this is how they can start engaging in the discussion and they can start understand what this is for ultimately. Because I just try to have less shiny examples uh, of like global data journalism. Of course, it's needed, but somewhere in the beginning, maybe. Uh, and then not trying to reproduce that, but just starting from, from the field, from what we get. Um, when I'm preparing a training, I usually go to the local uh, statistical committee, statistical um, uh, uh, agency website, and just dig through which data is available and how it can answer some of the issues that are discussed in the agenda recent have been discussed in the agenda recently uh and this is how many ideas are born also because once you show them what is possible and how it is possible to be um like included in their news coverage they start thinking this way and um I think a lot of people come to data journalism thinking that they will work with big data or they will do interactive visualizations but uh, what Eva and I teach is not really about that, it's more about 
um, what we just said. So kind of e explaining and um, um, showing the systemic biases, inequities in the society. Yeah. I'm sure there are other challenges, you know, when you're teaching in these high risk countries that you face, you know, um, digital security wise, not having enough data. Maybe you guys could talk to us a little bit about what, what that's like and how it differs from the West, so to speak. Uh, one thing that we've actually found, um, and I, I first discovered this in, in Kenya, um, was that telling an investigative story with data, especially if it's uh, data that's been made public by the government, can actually be safer um, than traditional forms of investigation. So what we really try to stay away from is things like leaked data. Um, we try to you know, avoid having to hack sites to get the data that we need. But we work with the data that's in the public domain or that we can get through FOIA requests. And so there's two advantages to that. One is there, there are very few data journalists in the country usually we're working with. So nobody has actually explored this data yet in most cases. And the second is if they're analyzing um, publicly available data, the story they can find can be much safer to publish um, because it's much more difficult for the government to criticize something, a source that actually originally came from them. So, for example, in Kenya, um, right when we were starting, we basically discovered that the government um, was spending very, very inefficiently um, in order to um, pay, basically pay the poor citizens of Kenya these cash transfers. And what we found was that a lot of the cash transfers um, had been stopped out of concerns, uh, both for ghost recipients and also because they basically wanted to change the formula uh, for how the cash transfers were allocated by state. So instead of um, allocating them by the number of poor people they had in each state, they wanted to just divide the total pool by the number of um, the number of people in that state. So we published the story basically um, exposing this plan to change the formula, which would obviously in the poorest states really affect the poorest people. Um, and when we ran that on the front page of the standard, um, we did get a lot of criticism from the Ministry of Finance, but we met with them and we showed them that it was in fact Ministry of Finance data where we able to draw these conclusions from, um, and they backed down uh, fairly quickly. Um, the, a similar um, situation happened in Baluchistan and Pakistan, which is an extremely dangerous place um, for journalists to report on. But uh, one of our journalists working in Baluchistan was able to uh, do a comparison story basically showing how much the Baluchistan government was sinking into infrastructure while making, so basically building roads while cutting the budget for health and education. And he did a comparative state story with other states that had actually invested heavily in health and education and were doing much better in, in terms of outcomes. So in terms of the number of students graduating um, and the health indicators in that state. And again, the reason he felt comfortable publishing that story was he was using the Ministry of Health and Ministry of Education um, in infrastructure data and budgets and reported results. Um, so he was able to actually produce a fairly critical story um, without very much backlash that he would have faced by doing this, you know, through, you know, anonymous sources or um, any other kind of uh, more controversial uh, source material. That's absolutely fascinating, Ava. Um, Anastasia, I wonder, you know, from your work in the Balkans and Russia, what, what you've come up against or 
if, if you feel comfortable talking about that, of course. <laughs> sure, sure I do. Um, well, I think one reason why data journalism in Kyrgyzstan took up was that the media landscape here was more free and more democratic than anywhere else in the region. And uh, this also goes into the um, topic of the access to the data. So in more closed countries, even the data is not available, such as like in Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, or even like Turkmenistan. So it's impossible to start a data journalism story in the first place. Uh, but in terms of the impact, um, I agree with Eva that it, data journalism stories in theory should be more bulletproof, uh, should be like safe for journalists to report on because it's not, they are not pinpointing on someone without any reason. Usually they show um, the fail of, the failure of the whole system and they prove it with data. Uh, what I found, however, uh, happening in Russia, where I, where I come from as a trend, is that um, A, um, the media that were publishing data journalism stories were also publishing investigations and they got really, really persecuted for publishing those. Um, so maybe not necessarily for the data stories, but for the other stories they do publish. And B, um, the um, officials, they got certain kind of immunity to, um, to the criticism, even if it's based on data, even if it's proven something awful, like, uh, I don't know, orphans are really uh, not getting um, adopted because of the law and um, whatever they try to do for Russians to adopt the Russian orphans doesn't work. But then they, the officials would just like uh, turn a blind eye on, it, on that. Um, so I think it's it's not only the question of the safety, but also a question of impact. And that is still an issue. There is still something to work on. Um, but in, in this regard, I would say that we often say that data journalism story starts with the publication because often there is something that needs to be done after it's been published. And it just depends if there is a, um, you know, like network of um, um, civil society in the country or re relevant non-governmental organizations to support that uh, uh, that conclusion and bring it to the eyes of parliament or other decision makers. Yeah. So we actually have a question from someone uh, who just messaged me privately. Let's start with his first question. Uh, he asks, when you pitch a data journalism story to an editor, how much of your hypothesis should you explore and develop on your own before pitching? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. So well, one thing I would say is often the biggest barrier for data journalists to be able to do data journalism in the newsroom are editors. Um, so I think we see a lot of problems with editors trying to embrace this idea of long form or explanatory reporting um, around a specific beat or subject. So I think if you can demonstrate to the editor that you have an evergreen topic, um, you have your initial hypothesis, but there are several other hypotheses that you could explore going forward, whether that's on, you know, whether it's a crime series, you know, a series on crime or a series on employment, uh, whatever it is, I would, I would try to show the editor that not only do you have a sound hypothesis, but you have a plan for how your time investment is going to pay off for them in the long term. So that it's not just a one-time burst of effort for one 
um, high profile story, but you have a, a plan for making this sustainable in the long term. I think that that for me has been the most effective ways to get editors on board with with even giving you the time uh, to do data stories in the first place. It really depends on the context. Um, so in the context of Central Asia, oftentimes the editor would not really um, worked with data journalism before. So sometimes what they think data journalism is, is kind of a map. And you need to really put everybody on the same page to make this dialogue happen between journalist and editor. So that's why we also uh, try to engage editors in some of our sessions so that they get, the, they get an understanding uh, of the methods of data journalism and also of the time it uh, uh, requires for the story to be told. And I think I was all, more often in the role of that editor because I was kind of external data editor in the local newsrooms. And uh, what I always require from uh, journalists is that they have done their background analysis. This is a part also that comes from Eva's manual, but it's usually what have, has been told already about the topic. And also what are the references in data journalism, maybe from the other countries that you're going to use. Uh, sometimes that um, really helps uh, formulating your own hypothesis because you can just simply copy the methods, copy the data units, data measurements that they used and apply it to your own context. And uh, currently I'm studying at the LEAD program where we meet a lot of data journalists that work in the US. And what I heard from one of them was that um, don't overpromise to your editor. So just show them what is available and you, you need to be sure that there is data to prove it, but uh, be uh, careful with what you promise to achieve because it might turn a little different. Sound advice there. Um, we also have another question. Uh, here goes. The allure of a lot of journalists wanting to dabble with data journalism is the sexiness of big data and interactive visualizations like Anastasia mentioned. What are some of the other common misconceptions or misleading ideas about data journalism that you've noticed? Um, I think a pretty common misconception that, that the tool is going to do the thinking for you. Um, that the if you just combine the data and the technology, somehow a story is magically going to emerge. So I think going in with the attitude that somehow data is going to make the storytelling process easier um, is a pretty common misconception that we 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 try to make that super clear uh from the beginning but um yeah so one common mistake i see is yes wanting to jump straight to the visualization um and when we encounter that we tell basically what i usually tell them is you want to paint the house like you want to paint your house a pretty color um, but i'm teaching you how to build houses so i'm sure it'll be a lovely violet color in the end but i'm worried about your house falling down um, so unless you have a solid um, analysis underlying your visualization, um, we're not going to get there. So actually in the course, it's we are three quarters through the course before you even create your first data visualization. Early on, you will be you'll be analyzing other people's visualizations. You'll be planning uh, visualizations, but we don't we don't unleash you on the tool until you really under understand the underlying design concepts. Um, and I think that's probably true uh, for a lot of areas of data journalism. So yeah, I think it's that that idea that we can jump right to the fun part at the end um, is 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 the most common misconception, and we sort of have to 
instill the idea that actually data can be quite tedious and it's rewarding in the end because of the stories that you uncover, but quite a lot of the work can be um, tedious. And um, it's again, like I said, trial and error um, and learning these tools and doing a lot of research in order to, to pick up the skills that you need to tell the story you want to tell. I'm just curious what programming languages both of you guys either teach or use in your own data storytelling. Yeah, so I mostly use R. So um, I mostly, again, for analysis, I'm not, you can, you can probably tell uh, my anti-viz bias. Um, I, I'm not super interested in data viz. So um, since I'm mostly doing the, the scraping and cleaning analysis, um, I'm mostly just uh, using R. Um, again, we, I don't teach it very often just because even with the 200 hour course, it's really only um, enough time to teach the rest of the data journalism process, teach them how to use spreadsheets and off the shelf tools, some basic scraping and cleaning. Um, and we don't often get to um, any really deeper coding exercise. Um, also, there are limited data sets um, on the topic that we're covering in a lot of these countries. Um, so those are a couple of reasons why um, a lot of the, the deeper um, development work is either done. If we do projects um, with the journalists we're working with, we'll often bring in um, a developer and design team. And again, part of the, the reason for that is to teach them that data journalism is a team sport. Um, get them familiar with how do I talk to de designers and developers about how visualization or interactivity can enhance my story um, and set up that that data journalism team workflow um, and make sure that everybody is at least um, comfortable talking about code and and has the terminology and they're able to move productively through this hypothesis driven uh, process uh, together. Yeah, one of my teachers is here today, it's, it's Gurman, and she's teaching me D3. Um, I just started, so <laughs> it's only the beginning. And to be honest, I started because I was feeling that, like, um, I didn't really need coding to teach data journalism because all you teach is this conceptual uh, understanding and also Excel, lots of Excel, lots of visualization principles. Data Rapper would do most of the work for us and uh, also management skills. So we would do stories that would require coding, but for that we would collaborate with either a programmer that is already working in the newsroom, or it would be a separate project that would have um, budget for a programmer to be hired. Um, and sometimes it would be a programmer coding in Python, scraping the, the PDFs for us, for example, from the court decisions websites. Sometimes it would be something done in JS, um, like interactive visualizations on top. But um, I really wanted to learn how to do it myself, at least the basics. Uh, let's see how it goes. So for me, it's now Python and uh, D3 in JavaScript. Brilliant. Um, and we have a question from Polash. He says, this is for both of you, as Dataful, my startup, is going to launch Bangladesh's first online data journalism learning platform, would you potentially be interested in collaborating with Dataful? So that's more of a comment. Maybe you guys could take that offline, but he's just interested to work with you on this um, learning opportunity. Oh, that's yeah, that's excellent to hear. Um, yeah, like I said, a lot of the partnerships that Anastasia and I developed, um, 
Jan, I think, who was on this call from Thebe, um, a lot of us yeah, started as working together informally and then we're able to build up some of these, these bigger, more um, intensive programs together. So um, we're definitely always open to looking for opportunities together. Um, and again, it's much, much easier when we have a local uh, partner who really understands the data scene and the media environment. Um, I always say the key to whether these programs are successful is you know our local connections and our local partners because they're the ones who are going to know the journalists that would most benefit from these programs um, they know where the data is and in the end they're going to be the ones that take over the curriculum and take over the training program uh, long after we leave and they're going to be working with the biggest newsrooms um, in that country going forward so um, yes always definitely uh, interested in, in groups that are willing to to work together on how to implement uh, these kinds of programs a big thanks to all of our listeners for tuning in today. Want to hear more interesting discussions on data journalism? You can subscribe to our podcast on SoundCloud, Spotify, Google, and Apple Podcasts. You can also get the podcast straight to your inbox by subscribing to our Conversations with Data newsletter at datajournalism.com forward slash subscribe. I've been your host, Tara Kelly, and that's all for now. See you next time.